Go ahead and turn in your Bible this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. New Testament, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the book of Acts and the book of Romans, and then you'll find 1 Corinthians. So toward the back of your Bible, but not all the way to the back. <clears throat> On the Sunday, each year that we have our annual members meeting, we usually have a little shorter worship service, including a little shorter message. And that's out of courtesy to those who have younger kids so that we're not stretching attention spans beyond the breaking point. Um, the key word there is a little shorter. But it's a streamlined service this morning. Usually it's something focused on where we are as a church. Could be looking back on the past year. Could be kind of thinking about where we need to be going as a church. And that's kind of what I'd like to do today. Really thinking about what we need to be focusing in on as we continue through 2021. The thing that we need to have in our minds as we together seek God's kingdom. And I think the thing that we really need to be having in our mind, and it's really nothing um, revolutionary in one sense, but in a year that <clears throat> has seen so many distractions and so many different things for us to be kind of researching and learning about and trying to figure out how do we, how do we live, the thing we need to be turning our attention to is the gospel. It's kind of a trendy thing to label something with the adjective gospel, but I'm going to do that this morning anyway, not to be trendy, but because it's the thing that I think we need to be talking about. And so I'd like for us to talk about gospel basics. And by that, I have in mind five categories of things that Icon Church needs to give attention to in 2021. And we'll only be able to take a couple of minutes, of course, to look at each one, but each one is important. So let me just jump right in. The first one is gospel faith. Gospel faith, believing the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the word literally means good news. It is an announcement, not an invitation. A lot of times, if you grew up the way I did, you have that kind of confusion in your mind that when you hear the word gospel, you think in terms of an invitation. That's not what the word means. It is good news. The news is announcing something that happened something that is true, and the core is that Jesus is Lord. Now, one story that's kind of helpful, and it's a story from outside the Bible, but it helps us with kind of the concept here, is the story of Pheidippides. There's a good name if you're planning on having any more kids. Uh, Pheidippides was what's called a hemerodromos, a long-distance runner for the army. And um, back in the day when Athens was finding itself threatened by an advancing Persian army, they needed some help. And so they called on their friends from Sparta to come and help them repel the Persians. And they did that, and they won. And the battle that took place, that's kind of the famous one where this happened, is the Battle of Marathon. And the story goes that Pheidippides was the army runner who ran from marathon back to Athens, a distance of 26.2 miles, to announce the victory. Now, there's some problems with the story. For one thing, it's more like 25 miles, not the 26.2, but 26.2 has stuck, and that's why a marathon is 26.2 miles. <clears throat> it also probably wasn't Pheidippides who did the running. He was involved in the story, but it seems like kind of two parts of the story have gotten conflated in um, 
in kind of the modern retelling of it. But what Pheidippides did is actually even more amazing. He ran uh, from Athens to Sparta to say, we need your help. And so the distance that he ran, uh, if you're looking at this uh, particular map, the white path is what Pheidippides ran. It's a distance of 150 miles, and he covered it in 36 hours. And so there's actually a race that takes place every year. It got started in the 1980s that covers that distance. And so the black line is the race route that runs from Athens to Sparta, a distance of 150 miles. And that has actually been done in as short a time, I believe, as like 20 hours. Um, but Pheidippides ran that 150 miles, told the Spartans that they needed help, was told, that's fine, we'd be happy to help, but we've got to wait for religious reasons until the full moon, which is going to be six days. So then he turned around after a short rest and ran the 150 miles back to give the news to the Athenians. Once Sparta came, they were able to help, and they won the Battle of Marathon. And the story is that the runner from, the, from Marathon came back to Athens and came into the city, found the city council there gathered waiting for news, and his announcement was, joy to you, we've won. So the idea is that the announcement of good news is an announcement of joy, because the battle has been won. It's kind of like the Christmas story, joy to the world, or the, you know, the announcement of the angels. I, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you gospel of joy. That's what was announced in Athens. Well, the Christian gospel there in 1 Corinthians 15 is summarized at the beginning of the chapter. So look there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and um, we'll just read the first five verses for now. Now, I would remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you. Preached is proclaiming. So this is the announcement of good news. He says, I came and I announced this good news, and now I'm reminding you about it. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so now he's saying this. He's saying, I'm going to recount for you what the gospel is, and it's of first importance. These are the first things, the first principles for Christians. This is of utmost importance. And so he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And it goes on from there to tell of other appearances that were made. <clears throat> this is Paul's version of joy to you, we've won. The victory has been achieved. Now, believe it and stand in it. Believe the gospel and stand in it. <clears throat> so what does it mean to believe the gospel? It means that you have faith in Christ. You're trusting Him. You're relying on Him. In our tradition, <clears throat> from the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, 500 years ago, the, the first principles were kind of put into what are called five 
solas. The word sola means alone. And the one here is sola fide, faith alone. By grace you are saved through faith. And that faith, <clears throat> that faith is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast about it. It means that you've submitted to the lordship of Jesus. The gospel is the announcement that he is now Lord. He's risen. He's conquered death in his own person. And there's coming a day where death will be conquered worldwide. And you can't believe that he's Lord and then deny it by your life. This is what it means to believe the gospel. Well, what are the stakes of believing or not believing? It's literally life and death. It's heaven or hell. So let me encourage you, if you are unsure, you need to be trusting Jesus, believing the gospel, recognizing that you can't do anything to earn God's favor. Jesus has done it for you. Believe him, trust him, rely on him. But let me also encourage you, tell people about it. Invite people here. We're, we're living in a day and age where a lot of churches are still not meeting. And people don't have the access to the preached word of God that they used to have. Invite them here, even just for the meantime, until their church reopens. For our church, for Icon Church, this message, the good news announcement that Jesus is Lord, must always be central. <clears throat> now, I'm going to go through some other ideas and places. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 15 at the end, so you may want to just keep a finger there. The second principle this morning is gospel growth, becoming holy. This is why we've been in the book of Leviticus recently. We're talking about the idea that because God is holy, we are supposed to be holy too. There are several different approaches to how you become holy. Let me give you three. One kind of on one extreme, one on the other extreme, and then the gospel middle, so to speak. One extreme is legalism. So on the one hand, those who try to become holy in this way follow God's laws so that God will approve of them. And the result is that you're seeking to earn God's approval. That's legalism. That's law. Where you think that if I can obey God's law enough to make him happy, then he'll approve of me. That's legalism. On the far end of the spectrum, those who sometimes look at, at what the message of the Bible is and they say, well, Jesus is the one who forgives sins. He, he paid my sin penalty and so now it really doesn't matter. And I can live in license. So we have legalism and we have license. License says it doesn't matter how I live because I'm saved by Jesus, not by my own work. So I don't have to worry about following God's law. And the result is then there's no concern to live in a way that pleases God. But the middle, the gospel middle, and, and both of those things on the extremes get something right and something wrong. But the gospel middle is following God's laws out of gratitude because God has already approved of you. And the result of it is there's a healthy concern to live in a way that pleases God, but not because you're trying to earn God's approval. Rather, because he's already given it. So, for example, let's say 
we have our resident lawyer here this morning. Joel, if you're sitting for the bar exam, and um, I don't even know how the whole thing works. Let's say there's a committee that grades it. And, and let's say you meet with the committee before the exam. And the committee says, we are granting you a perfect score on the bar exam. No strings attached. We would like you to study hard and to do well on the exam to show your gratitude for this perfect score that we've given you. If you then went and said, I've got the perfect score, I don't need to worry about it, that would completely miss the spirit of what has been given to you. But if you went home and you said, I, you know what, I want to honor that gift that has been given to me. I want to study really hard. I want to do it as well as I possibly can because I want to honor this gift. In some ways, it's, a, it's an analogy and it's limited, but that's what the gospel is. That's how we grow in the gospel. That's how we're supposed to become holy. We take care to follow God's law, but not because it's going to earn us the perfect score. It's because the perfect score has already been granted to us. So how do we do that? How do we pursue gospel growth? Well, it's grace and effort. Not that's, that's not what gives us salvation. That's what gives us gospel growth. And so we need gospel reminders. We need to be hearing the gospel regularly. We need to be in God's word. We need to be in church. We need to be with God's people. Those are the means that God has designed for you to hear the gospel over and over. That's his means for how you grow. You read his word. You spend time with his people. And those things speak the gospel into your life. And the Holy Spirit uses that to cause you to become more like him. You can see this in the pattern of the letters, for instance, that Paul writes. He, he's really obvious about it. So, for example, in the letter to the Ephesians, it's six chapters long, the way we've got it divided up in our Bible. If you go right to the middle of it, Ephesians 4, chapter 1, here's what you read. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul says, I'm urging you to walk worthy. I'm urging you to live holy. But notice the word, therefore. That refers back to everything that he said before this. And if you were to go back through Ephesians, you would see chapter 1 is all about like what God has done for you in Christ, what he's given to you in Christ. You go all the way through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, you get to the end of chapter 3 and it crescendos with this praise for God's amazing love that he has shown to you in Christ. And Paul says, Therefore, on the basis of all of that, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of what you've been given, worthy of this calling that God has given to you. Paul knows that gospel growth comes from gospel awareness. Third, gospel training, leading your family. Oh, so here we hit Family worship, and it's been a while since I've mentioned that, and if you're like me, as soon as you hear that term, guilt rises. Because you failed. You haven't done well in leading your family. And men, I'm talking particularly to you when I say this, but really it's, it's to all of us who are adults, and um, whether that's with kids or grandkids or whatever it is, we want to be training our families in the gospel. 
So if you've failed, start again. Uh, and and in, in effort to help you with that, I'm even giving you a week off today from the catechism. What we've been doing for our family worship times is working on just reading that short devotional from the catechism, reading the scripture, and talking about it briefly for a few minutes. Praying together, and then every great once in a while, and I want to be growing and improving in this, singing together. So those are the basics. Now there's other ways of gospel training as well. One of the things that we've typically done as a church is we've had Sunday school classes. We haven't been able to do that here recently, but we have some plans in the mix, so stay tuned. Hopefully in the very near future you'll be hearing about that so that we can have more ways to be doing gospel training. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't always have to be formal either. Take advantage of other venues that come up or other opportunities that come up. Some of us in our family watched um, the movie The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, this week. And so you, <laughs> I see the looks. So you have uh, this community that is formed, uh, and, and as you look at this community, you know, it's a very insular community, and they, they're particular about the way that they live, and they're very protective, and they're very moral, and um, they're trying to prevent any wrong or anything bad from happening in their community. And I'm trying not to give away the whole plot of the story in case it's been long enough that you've seen it that you've forgotten it. It's, you know, this, is, this community is functioning in the middle of a world that's not like it, in the middle of a world that's different. And so <clears throat> we talked, and, I, and when I say talked, I mean like a minute or two, just very briefly about the idea that there's some good and some bad here. This is how the world often views Christians as kind of secluded off in our own, you know, little holy huddle. The good part is that Christians should be shaping culture, and so it's good to have that kind of impact on a community, and we want to have a community that is shaped by moral values, that's really that's shaped by the gospel. And we should be living differently from the world, and so those are good parts to it. The bad part is that we should be shaping culture and having an impact in the world. We want to be announcing the good news to the world, and so we can't isolate ourselves away from the world. And so there's good and there's bad in the presentation of that movie. And so we can say, uh, here's a way for us to learn something about how we are to live the Christian life. And just take the opportunity that comes up in the course of life to, to, to talk about the gospel and how it impacts our lives. And that's really part of what's behind God's instructions for the nation of Israel. De Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You get the idea. It's kind of an all-of-life thing. Take the opportunities integrated into all of life. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The idea is that the word of God has so indelibly marked you that it can't be missed. Your family's life is marked by the gospel. Your home is marked by the gospel. And so gospel training is important for us. The fourth 
principle, gospel worship, celebrating the gospel. This is, when we come together to worship, we're reorienting ourselves to the gospel weekly. Don't think of Sunday as the end of the weekend. It's, according to Scripture, the Lord's Day. It's the day when Jesus rose. It's the first day of the week. It's the day that's dedicated to Him. It sets the tone and the perspective for the week to come. This day is preparation for the week that's coming. And so we celebrate the gospel, hopefully in gratitude like we talked about at the beginning. And I hope this has been clear in the way that we have worshiped as a church in the things that we spend our time doing when we come together on a Sunday. We do the things that God says a church is supposed to do. So that centers around the preaching of the word. But it also involves things like scripture reading and prayer and communion and uh, time that we spend together and encouragement in the word. I've been thinking about this for some time and um, trying to figure out how to shape our church's gathered worship to even more so reflect the gospel. Now we've been, just for example, we've been studying Leviticus together. There's three offerings in Leviticus that are often prescribed together. So in Leviticus 9, when the tabernacle uh, first got, got rolling, when the, when the sacrifices started and all of that, there were three sacrifices that were offered. The sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. Now when those three offerings are prescribed in Scripture, they always happen in that order. Because that's a gospel order. The sin offering corresponds to Jesus atoning for our sin. The burnt offering, or whole burnt offering, is our entire selves being offered to God in response to what he's done in dealing with our sin. And then the peace offering is the result that we have peace with God. We have fellowship with God. So long before Jesus ever came, God oriented the worship of Israel around the shape of the gospel, even as it pointed forward to what was coming. Recently, I heard a good explanation of this from a particular church, and they label parts of the service in this way. Confession, so confessing sin together. Now, for us today, we're looking back to what Jesus has done, not looking forward like Israel was to what needed to happen. We're looking back to what has been done. So we have this, uh, this kind of uh, retrospective look where we see what Jesus has done and the assurance of pardon from sin that we have because of it. Consecration, giving ourselves over to him. Well, how do we know how we're supposed to live in a way that pleases him? Through his word. And so the great part of our church's worship service together is spent in God's word and hearing from what God has to say. Communion can mean specifically the Lord's Supper, but it's really anything that is reflective of the idea that we now have fellowship with God. So when we sing at the end of the message and celebrate the things that we've talked about, we're celebrating the results of the gospel, the fellowship that we have now with God. But there's also bookends to this, and the first is the call to worship. At the end, it's the commission. And so these two things function, like I said, as bookends around that gospel shape. And the call is saying, 
It's calling us out of the world as God's gathered people to come together to celebrate the gospel. And then when we've done this, when we've been reoriented to the gospel, we are sent back out. We're commissioned. We're sent back out into the world because our job doesn't just end with gathering on Sunday morning. Our job is to take the gospel into the world, to live as gospel people in the world. And so we're commissioned. We're sent back out. Now, our worship service may not always formally follow that order, <clears throat> but I would like to see the gospel becoming increasingly clear in our gathered worship and that we're conscious of what we're doing and what it means. Finally this morning, gospel victory, proclaiming Jesus' lordship in every area of life. The gospel is not Gnostic. What do I mean by that word? If you remember when we talked in 1 John about the Gnostics, the Gnostics were people who basically said, <clears throat> we're looking for a special knowledge, this special spiritual insight that we kind of rise above the earthly plane and we live on this spiritual plane. And the problem with the Gnostics was that they left the earthly behind. They didn't see that there were implications for this earth and how we live in the world that come from the gospel. And really, they veered into heresy. The gospel is more than just spiritual. The gospel has implications for culture, for government, for education, for occupations, for all of life. Let me just take government as an example this morning, just to think briefly about it. If we were to say, what does Scripture say about government, we'd probably all first turn to Romans 13, which tells us that we're supposed to obey the governing authorities. And we think about Matthew 22, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But let me ask the question, should we expect the government to obey Jesus? Have you thought about that question? Is Jesus Lord? Did Jesus mean what he said when he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If we were to say that government shouldn't be expected to obey Jesus, then what is the standard for government? By what standard should government operate? If you don't think the government should obey Jesus, then how would you know what a government should do? What should a Christian who serves in government do? How should they make decisions? For that matter, how should you and I make decisions when we come to vote? Would it be right for a politician to say, I obey Jesus. All of my decisions, my votes, my policies will be directed by what the Bible says, period. See, our culture pushes back against that really hard because we say, well, separation of church and state. You need to understand that was never intended to be the separation of state and God. The separation of church and state is a recognition of how God has designed the world with different spheres of sovereignty, spheres of authority. So there's the family, there's the church, and there's the state. And they each have their own areas of authority. So the state doesn't tell the church how to worship and what to do. But it doesn't mean 
that the state's not accountable to Jesus. The family is accountable to Jesus. The church is accountable to Jesus. The state is accountable to Jesus as well. If you don't think the government should obey Jesus, then you're operating as a Gnostic. You've separated out in your mind the spiritual and the earthly, and you think that Jesus is just concerned with the spiritual. But that's not how we think about our work or our possessions, at least I hope not. Scripture says we're supposed to obey the governing authorities, and we give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But that's not all that Scripture says. All authority belongs to Jesus. We are all accountable to him. And I'm just using government as an example this morning. But we need to learn to think this way about every aspect of life. The gospel has real-world implications for all of life. We are to be gospel people announcing the lordship of Christ Monday through Saturday. Not just when we gather on Sunday. I told you we would come back to 1 Corinthians 15. Take a look with me, starting in verse 20. In this chapter, Paul is really talking about the resurrection. It's the result, you know, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has risen, and then he launches into talking about our resurrection based on that. But look at what he says in verses 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now listen, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Where history is heading, where God's plan is aiming, is that one day every rule and authority and power that opposes Jesus will be destroyed and that all remaining authority and power will come under the lordship of Jesus. And when everything has been put in order, then the last enemy, death, is defeated. That's the resurrection. And the kingdom is delivered to God the Father. So where history is heading... Where God's goal is going is that every rule and power and authority comes under the lordship of Jesus. He's already announced it, the good news. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You and I are to live in that victory. We're to stand in that victory. Remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 15. This gospel, this good news, this announcement in which you stand we are to live our lives as gospel people in all of these areas, keeping the gospel central. The gospel announcement is that Jesus has won. The victory has already been accomplished, and we are called to live in that victory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be gospel people, that we would not uh, be legalists, that we would not aim for license either, 
but that we would have that balance in the middle where we understand that the only way that we've been able to come into your presence is by what Jesus has done for us. It's the good news of the gospel. He is Lord. He's defeated sin and death. And out of gratitude for what he has done for us, we want to live lives that are holy, that are given over to him. We want to have gospel growth and we want to have gospel training in our families and gospel worship as a church. And we look forward to the gospel victory that you will bring. And I pray that you would help us as we continue through 2021 to understand our role, what you're calling us to do as we are commissioned and sent forth as your people to live as gospel people in this world. Help us to understand what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.